All right, uh, we've got some quick slides that are going to take you through the whole Bible. Get ready. Here comes the first one. We started with creation. You guys remember creation, right? In the beginning, God, he created everything. What did he create? It's a simple question. Yeah, he created everything. That's what we know. And we talked about that when he created everything, whatever it was, he called it good. And we've been talking this whole time about these two Hebrew words that ripple all through the Old Testament. Do you remember what they are? The word for good is tov. Man, all of you that just like mouth tov, you're my hero. Like you guys are listening. I'm so pumped. And then the word for evil is ra. And we said, let that just become a, a curse word in your life. Like, wouldn't that be great? Like, get rid of all the other words. Just start saying ra. It's the Bible word for evil. And it sounds so great to say ra, right? You say that when you're upset, ra, right? It's great. Tov and ra. And you see from the beginning, God created this stuff to be good. And then there was a tree of tov and ra that Adam and Eve were not to eat from. And the implication was that God was going to teach them tov and ra. He was going to do it. But they said, no, we're going to do it ourselves. And they rebelled. And then we had this fall, right? Adam and Eve, uh, Genesis 3, they went apart from God. And then in Genesis 6, it goes on to tell us right before the flood that everyone has ra in their heart. They're evil to the core, right? And then we have the flood and then God steps out. We, we had the Tower of Babel, which was really interesting. We were trying to make a name for ourselves and God said, no, no, no. I'm going to make a name for you. So he chooses Abraham and out of his family, we're going to talk about that later, a lot of Abrahamic covenant stuff, but he calls Abraham and his family. Eventually we get to Joseph in Egypt, uh, the Israelites, and Joseph has all these awful situations, but the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, he says, what you intended for Ra, God used for Tov. What you intended for evil, God used for good. That's pretty much the summary of Genesis and newsflash, that's the summary of the entire Bible. What you intended for evil, God used for good. Why? Because God is the objective source of tov, the objective source of good. I can't never not preach. That's not even my notes. You have things in your life that you think are good, are something. You've measured and equated them. You have some verdict that you give to everything in your life. If it is not based off the Lord, off of King Jesus, you have no idea whether or not it's good. You're just guessing. And how terrible would it be if you get to the end of your life and realize all this stuff is actually junk? Do you know someone who wasted their whole life on things that are stupid? Yeah, how do you not become that person? The Lord. The Lord is the only one who knows Tov. He's the only one that knows Tov from Ra, good from evil. So we seek him. Right, so that's what happened. Then uh, Israel gets enslaved, right? They're in Egypt, and you have that whole story with Moses. Next. Kapow! You've got Moses and the burning bush in Exodus 3, the 10 plagues. God rescues Israel from Egypt and he gives them the 10 commandments and his law, Torah, 613 laws. He gives them, he says, these are the things you do to follow me, to be ritually pure, to be, to be ceremonially pure so that you can be with me in my presence because my holiness will wreck you. I am so tov, I am so good that you will be destroyed if you come near me. But I'm gonna make a way to where my presence can be with you because I'm a God of grace and I'm a God of love. This is Yahweh, Right? This is what he is. And so he comes in and he says, that's it. Here's my thing. I'm going to give you the promised land. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And then we get into Joshua and they go in and they're supposed to get out all the Canaanites. Do they do that? That's, uh, no, sort of, not really. And then you get the, uh, the judges, right? How Israel has all these judges in Judges 1. And then Israel wants their first king. And there's this tension of like, man, they're clearly doing it in the wrong way. We knew that they would have a king because of Deuteronomy 17. More on that later. But their hearts are in the wrong place. God's upset about it. Samuel's upset. But they end up anointing Saul. Saul, good or bad king? Yeah, he stinks. He's prideful. He's arrogant. We talk about it. He's a hothead. He can't throw a spear to save his life. Homie's always throwing spears. Can't hit a thing, right? And so that's Saul. Then David's anointed king. Then David kills Goliath. And then David becomes king. And here we are. 
caught up to the kings. And this whole story of Tov and Ra, up and down, you see God is consistently Tov. He's bringing good. He's doing good stuff. And we consistently bring raw chaos, disorder. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. David at the end of his life, God's talking to him. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall, uh, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who? Who is God talking about? Solomon, ultimately Jesus, look at you. Solomon, spoiler alert. Uh, he's talking about Solomon, right? And this, this is where we're at in the story. And if you've been paying attention the last three weeks, we've been talking about Solomon. We said there are three things we know about Solomon. Week one, we talked about what? Big building he built? Temple, right? And we, we are the temple. We talked about that, right? And how God is sacred space. The temple is the place where you find the one thing that can't fully be described, but it also describes everything else. And that's all temples of all religions, but specifically this temple is where Yahweh dwells. He's with his people. And if you've been following the story, man, that's a big deal. Yahweh is with his people. And so Solomon built the temple. He's also a wise guy. Wrote some wisdom literatures. We read about that last week. He's a wise guy who wrote, writes all this stuff. This week, we're going to talk about him being a foolish king, which is difficult because you might know him as being a wise guy, but he's also a very foolish king. So we're going to look at his life this week uh, and talk about how the author structured it. It's really interesting how the author structures talking about Solomon's life because you get these two portraits, more on that in a minute, but you see these constant links um, to help kind of talk about this hyperlink. You might not know about this, but the way hyperlinks work in scriptures that scripture is, is potentially the most self-referential document in all of history. There's nothing like the scripture, the Bible that you read, the Bible that you hold. There is nothing like it in all the world. It is God's word, but even when you look at it historically, when you look at it from a literary standpoint, when you look at how it's all connected and how it's all been structured, nothing matches it. It's incredible. This document's going to help, or this image is going to help us with links. Man, this does not look great in our, uh, our thing. We'll post on Facebook later. Uh, can we do a little darker? Is there a way to like make the lights up here darker? It's okay if we can't make this look. Okay. Yeah, we'll do that. So uh, I'm just going to explain this real quick. You guys see all these lines, this big line down here, these white and gray lines, there's, there's tons of them all pointing down. These are all chapters and verses in scripture. This really long one right here is Psalms 119. These are all places in scripture that the Bible is referencing itself. And if you look here, you have small arcs between them. These blue ones, right? They're itty bitty. And some of them, if you could see, there's shades of green in here. But then as you go out, there's ones that are referencing from the beginning to end and over and over and over. You can turn the lights back up. The point of this image is that the Bible is referencing itself over thousands of years it was written, over very different groups of people during very different times, it referenced itself 63,000 plus times. 63,000! There is not a single book in all of history, in all of literature, there's not a single thing you'll study. Literary majors, come, back, come at me on this. There is nothing like the Bible. Well, how does that happen? I think it's one of the most incredible evidences for there being a God who's trying to communicate to you. You don't have another religious text like this. You don't have another thing that's over thousands of years referencing itself 63,000 plus times to say, look at who God is. Look what God's doing. Why? Because these stories are real. These stories are all true. God's trying to communicate to you. And so when we read Solomon in that lens, we acknowledge, wait a minute, the author here isn't just talking about Solomon. He's talking about so many things at once. And we're meant to see those links, those hyperlinks. Like when you're reading a document and it says, for more, click here. And you click and boom, it takes you to another document, right? This is the language of hyperlink. You understand that. You've used the internet. Welcome to the 21st century. Same idea in the Bible. These things are hyperlinked. So with that in mind, we're going to wrestle through that. 
How did Solomon start? Right? 1 Kings 3 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the standards of, his day, uh, of David, his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Solomon loved the Lord. This is where it all starts. 1 Kings 3.3. 3. This is what we know about Solomon. Solomon loved the Lord. A hint here, a reference to Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right? Solomon loved the Lord. And so he goes up and he has this, this dream. He, he falls asleep. He has this vision. And um, what happens when he's up here? What does he ask God for? Yeah, God says, ask me for anything. And he says, I want wisdom. Specifically, 1 Kings 3, 9. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding, a mind to govern your people, that I may discern between Tov and Ra. Do you hear it? You don't yet, but you will. Tov and Ra. You know who didn't discern between Tov and Ra? Adam and Eve. You know who didn't discern between Tov and Ra? So many people. They decided to take it for themselves. All these kings. Saul did that. We saw David have some struggles. And so the authors want you to say, hey, hyperlink, do you remember Genesis? Do you remember this? Saul doesn't, Solomon doesn't start by saying, I know how to rule. I'm awesome. My daddy was King David. No, he says, God, I'm actually like a child. I don't know how to rule. I need you to give me wisdom, to know between Tov and Ra, to know between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Your people. These are your people that you said you'd give. God, I need your understanding of good and evil. Is that how you approach your days? Do you wake up and say, God, I need you to know. I need you to tell me what is good and evil today because I, I don't know. I'm going to mess it up. Is that how we approach life? Solomon chooses to look to the Lord and surrender to him. And his wisdom of good and evil. Think about Adam and Eve. Think about how that, that's not what they did. And the, the author wants you to see that. They want you to see this link and say, hey, hey, this is a reversal of the rebellion. You know who Solomon is? He's better than Adam. He's better than Adam. Solomon is better than Adam. That's what the narrator's screaming to you. He wants you to know, hey, this idea of Adam and Eve, Solomon's better. He's above that. He could rule by his own strength and wisdom, but... That is incomplete and blind, and he knows that, so he looks to the Lord. Let's go, Solomon. Good work. 1 Kings 3.10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Uh, it's, uh, the actual Hebrew is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. You know who wasn't pleasing in the sight of the Lord? Tons of people. Do you remember the book of Judges when we went through it? Constantly did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, not pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And so again, this hint to wait. Now Solomon is, he is Israel. He's the best Israel. He's where it needs to be. He's not just better than Adam and Eve, right? But now he's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And that link back to, hold on, we're going back. Solomon, we've arrived. Let's get pumped. This is too good, man. The author is emphasizing that Solomon is the new Adam, that he's fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. We made it. We did it, guys. Are you excited? We finally arrived. Why aren't you excited? Because you've been reading the Bible. You know that there's a turn and every story has a fall. But we should be, I mean, if you're reading this and you just stopped here, you'd be like, holy cow, this, shut the book. We did it. Solomon, gah, hooray, you should be pumped. I can tell you're not as pumped as I am. That's okay. Uh, there's more though, right? There's so many links. First Kings 4.20, we've got a thing here for. First Kings 4.20, Israel and Judah were as numerous as the sand, which is a reference to Genesis 13, the Abrahamic covenant. Your offspring will be as much as dust. First Kings 6 and 7, Solomon builds the temple like the garden. It looks like Eden. It's full of trees and animals and precious stones. So see, oh, Solomon's doing this stuff. He's bringing back Eden. He's reversing the curse, right? First Kings 
Kings 4, 5, and 10, King Haram and then Queen Sheba, they worship the Lord. These are outsiders. Queen of Sheba, King Haram, these are pagans. They're outsiders, and they see what Solomon's doing, and they fall and worship the Lord. All these outsiders are coming in because that's what God said to Abraham. He said, through you, I will bless all the nations. Remember we talked about being priests? We talked about how we're all priests. And that was the idea from the beginning, Israel's priests. That's what's happening. And so as you read these stories and you see those links back, you're like, oh my gosh, God is doing it. He's done it. Thank you, Solomon, for finally reversing the curse and following the Lord, opening your hands and saying, I don't know Tob from Ra. I'm going to look to you, God. This is the dude. He's made it. You have all this amazing stuff about Solomon, but the author does this really interesting thing as he's writing all this in 1 Kings 3 and 4 and 6 and 7 and a little bit in 5 and then 10 and 11. You start kind of seeing a different perspective. Have you ever seen like art that, who are my artists? Raise your hand if you're an artist. I know who you are. I'll make you raise your hand. Okay. Have you ever seen like you look at art one way and then as you move, it turns into something completely different? We played this video here uh, when we talked about Jesus and how uh, he turns the king upside down. I'm going to play it again because I think it's an interesting perspective of art. Let's look at this real quick. Just a bunch of scattered pieces. And depending on how you look at them, you see light or you see dark. This is our boy Solomon. This is what we're talking about here. And the author does this intentionally. If you go back and read, I challenge you to read 1 Kings 3 through 11 and pick up on these hints, pick up on these things that are, that are pointed out. The author's trying to say, hey, it's like there's something hidden in plain sight. All this good stuff. He's the better Adam. He's fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. Man, he is so awesome. And then you get these little things that don't quite make sense. Before we start looking at those, I want us to read Deuteronomy 17 real quick. Deuteronomy 17, these are some rules when Israel gets king from the words of God. God says, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. And you shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall you acquire for himself excessive silver and gold." No horses, especially Egypt, which uh, horses is military power. It's like tanks and, and Apache helicopters. Right, don't, don't acquire for yourself this huge military for power. Why would you have a huge For power, for control. Don't acquire for yourself a huge military power. Don't acquire for yourself wives because your hearts will turn away, right? Sex and lust, power is there too. Don't have too many wives because their heart will turn away. And don't acquire excessive gold or silver, money and power. Now, just stop for a minute. That seems like a pretty solid list for a good leader, right? Don't, don't obsessively seek power. Don't obsessively seek sex and lust. Don't obsessively seek money. Does that sound like a good leader, right? That's the kind of leader we want. Do you know someone who struggles with that? Like, I mean, come on. Can't read any story. This is, what, this is the struggle of all humanity. And God puts it right there like, hey, the people who lead, my people, this is what they should do. Now let's look at Solomon's life. 1 Kings 4, 26, and then 10, 28. He had so many horses and chariots, and he imported them from Egypt. And of course, that's rippled in, all this good stuff he's doing. And then you get this hint. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. Wait. No, Solomon. You're not... Shh. Okay. Wait. First Kings 11, 1 through 8. Solomon's wives and concubines, there are a thousand of them. They turned him away after other gods. Can you imagine having a thousand sex partners in your life, people that you are just collecting, women that you're collecting for your power, control, authority. Can you imagine being one of those women? Come on. 
And that's just thrown in there. He's like, wait a minute, hold on. Wait, he's got horses. What are you doing here, Sol- Solomon? Wait, oh, you got all these. Hold on. 1 Kings 9, 26 through 28, chapter 10, verse 21. He's got a fleet of ships, not because he has a big navy so he can protect himself. It's so he could bring in what? Gold. Homie has so much gold, he's got to have special ships to bring out. In fact, the author, it's like hyperbole. Gold is so important that people don't even need silver. Silver's meaningless because we've got all this gold. Silver stinks. Gold's all the rage. And it's just ridiculous. You're reading this, you think, hold on, that isn't, is that an excessive amount of gold? That is the definition of excessive. If you have to have your own naval fleet to bring in gold, you have definitely breached excess, Right? Put that on a coffee mug. That's pretty obvious. If you have to have a naval fleet to bring in your gold, that's excessive. And then we get these hints, they're ripples, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, Solomon. But there's more. 1 Kings 5, 13 through 18, and then 9, 19 through 23. He enslaves immigrants and foreigners to gather materials and to build storage cities. The phrase used here, catch this. It sounds pretty good, right? Build storehouses, use laborers to build your stuff, Right? That makes sense. We've seen that in history. The phrase forced labor is only used one other time in the Hebrew Bible. Do you know when it's used? Of Pharaoh. One other time. Links. Hyperlinks. Right? We catch this. Now, storage cities. It's also only used one other time in Scripture. Do you know when it's used? Egypt and Pharaoh. Ah. But we're not supposed to go back and get horses from them. Certainly we shouldn't model their building strategies. The author's doing something here. The author wants you to be uncomfortable. Say, wait a minute. Psalm, what are you doing? Like, you're, are you Pharaoh here? What's going on? First Kings 3, 1 Kings 3.1, he formed an alliance with Egypt by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Deuteronomy 7, 3-4 says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me and serve other gods. No, Solomon. Ah, Light, dark, whoa. And it's just sprinkled in there. Do you see how beautiful the author's doing this? It's like you're reading this heroic story. And then the more you read it, you're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. And it should, it's like, wait, is Solomon better than Adam? Is he awesome? Or is he, is he like Pharaoh in Egypt, ultimately like Babylon? Yes. Welcome to the beauty of Scripture. Welcome to the loving God who wrote you this incredible document for you to understand his heart and the corruption of ours. Solomon is exactly both. And it makes us incredibly uncomfortable because he is so broken. He seems so great. And he's both incredibly broken. And the author gives us these beautiful bookends. 1 Kings 3.3, it said that Solomon loved the Lord. Like Deuteronomy 6. And then we hop to 1 Kings 11.1. Now Solomon loved Many foreign women. So God has a conversation with Solomon in 1 Kings 9. This is a paraphrase, uh, but it's uh, in 1 Kings 9, 4 through 8. God tells him, hey, if you follow me like David, I will keep your throne forever. But if you turn aside and follow other gods, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And this house will become a heap of ruins. In fact, God even goes on to say, people will look at this and they'll, it'll be a joke. It'll be like a proverb to them. It'll be an example of what they should never do. God lays it on pretty thick. And then this is, this is what happens. Solomon's heart's turned away. He chases after other gods and makes his life about money, sex, and power. 
the Solomon's life. In fact, it's interesting that the, the narrator here, they want us to see, this is a slow fade. This happened over several years. It's sprinkled without. And that should give us all pause because none of us are as awesome as Solomon. None of us. But even he struggled with these things and he had a slow fade one degree at a time. One degree at a time. I teach my boys reading this book and we talked about um, a compass and a thermometer and how you don't go from 20 degrees to 60 degrees instantly. It changes by degree. And you can't go from going this degree to this degree. Even if you do like a spin jump, right? Ah, you still hit every degree in between. You don't become the man of God, the woman of God. You don't become who God intended you to be instantly aside from Christ. And even then, it's a degree at a time. It's a constant posture following him. That's why scripture continually mentions us to walk in his ways, to observe all that I've commanded you, to have a constant posture of looking to the Lord because the Lord knows we struggle with these things. Solomon's life was one degree at a time turning away and we see these little hints in there mixed in with all the good things may evil not let you be so focused on how good and awesome you think you are that you miss all the brokenness all the corruption that's in your life in the end we see all these gods pop up these uh, foreign gods of Molech Asheroth and Baal uh, we're going to be talking about Baal more. We talked about Asheroth and went through Judges. Uh, in general, what you see here is gods of money, sex, and power. I mean, I could overemphasize. I could even show you some images of things that uh, archaeologists have found, of different images of worshiping these gods. They are gods of money, sex, and power. So, in fact, Moloch is the god that you sacrifice children to, that you kill babies before. They heated up his hands and they lay the babies in the hands of this. It's terrible. Terrible stuff. And Solomon, the guy who's supposed to be reversing the curse, he just oh, lets it happen. Because I got these foreign ladies, and I got a thousand of them, and they need to be happy. So we're going to build these temples for them. Slow fade. And before you know it, you're doing all the things that you never thought you would do. I've worked in youth ministry long enough to tell you parents, your kids aren't wonderful and perfect and angelic. All of a sudden, they're doing things you never thought they'd do. And if I had a dime for every time a youth parent told me, my little girl would never, and I never thought we... It happens. All of us are one bad car wreck away and a few prescription pills away from being an addict. You're not special. I love you. I care about you. You need to hear it. It happens one degree at a time. There's not a single person in here who's above all of this. I would never do that. Would you not? Are you better than Solomon? Because I'm not. One degree at a time. And then the kingdom splits. And then we have lots of prophets. Look at your handout. There's a picture at the bottom. You've got Jeroboam and Rehoboam and splits. It's just a nightmare. And then we'll see that eventually the temple burns. So sad, man. If you, you, want, you want a heartbreaker, go read the end of Second Kings. It'll break your heart. Because you're just like, man, look, look where we came. And now it's all burning. So why would the author do this, guys? Why would I walk you through all this? Just to say, like, oh, it's a pastor thing to say. Stay away from money, stay away from sex, and stay away from, you know, all the other stuff. Like, is, that, is that it? Come on. No, the author has something deeper in mind. Of course those things are true. Money, sex, and power are corrupting you. They're corrupting me. Welcome to the West. That's what we've been built on, right? That's the entire culture. We, we, man, guys, let's just be real. The fish doesn't understand how murky the water is that it's swimming in. You can't say to the fish, hey, do you see how dirty your water is? Because Lake of the Ozarks is incredibly dirty, right? And the fish are like, eh, it's our water. It's how we live. We don't know, right? You have no idea the standard of sex, the standard of power, the standard of, of money in your life. Like, for all you know, we're all completely missing it. And we just live in a culture that has constantly, slowly, over hundreds of years, brought us into things that say, oh, this is okay. These movies are okay. These shows are okay. This bank account's okay. 
No idea. God is the God of Tov. He's the God of goodness. He's the only shot at knowing what should be right. And if we're not looking to him, you're guessing at best. And people better than me and better than you have fallen to this stuff. Why would the author do this? The author wants us to know this slow fade. The author wants us to know that sin is always there. Genesis 4, 7, the very first time sin is mentioned in the Bible. It's right after the fall. God's talking to Cain. Why are you mad? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's the first time the word sin is used in the Bible. Sin, and it's described as crouching at the door, like a ravenous beast trying again, snarling monster trying to get you. That's the way God describes sin. It's at your door. Is sin at your door? You betcha. Do you think it's not? Oh yeah, that's what evil wants you to think. I've figured out my lusts. I've figured out my addiction. I've figured out my gossipiness. I go to church on Sundays. I've got all the things figured out. That's what evil wants you to think. And God says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. Solomon shows that money, sex, and power are always there to overthrow us. One degree at a time. Can you relate? I mean, maybe it's not those phrases. Maybe you don't want to say money, sex, and power. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's how much you hope you'll get the next promotion so you have a little bit more money, a little bit more time to buy that thing. Maybe it's the constant power struggle in your marriage or relationships or with your kids because you have to feel like you're above. You have to feel like you've arrived. Maybe it really is the porn and the lust and the corrupt things that go through your mind that you hide that you don't want anyone in the room to know. And you avoid all the statistics about all the things people look at online because I don't want to think about that. Money, sex, and power. Sin is crouching at your door. Just as Adam and Eve saw the fruit, it looked good to them. It was pleasing to their eyes that it would make them wise. So the Bible tells us in John 2, 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires, lusts of the flesh, the desires and the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life, it is not from the Father. These things are not from your Father. It is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires and lusts. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The will of God, the one who knows Tov from Ma, he abides forever. The one who abides with him lasts forever. So all of your accomplishments, all your power, all the things that make you, you put your own verdict in. Oh, I've arrived. I've done this. Here's what makes me good. Here's what I've done this week. You do this every day. Every day you decide, every moment, I did this, I'm enough, I'm better than this person. I look at this social media post and I think this is my little thing that I hold on to. I've gained this. All those accomplishments, the pride of life, all the desires you have, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, things that you want to obtain, that you want to get. I've got to get these things, I've got to have it, it's got to be mine. It's not from the Father. It's all passing away. Why is this double portrait here of Solomon? It's so that you look at yourself. So you look at the world around, you look at the church, and you see sin is crouching at the door. Say, sin is crouching at the door. Say it again. Sin is crouching at the door. Man, I'm not just here to scare you. I'm here to draw reality because our culture wants you to believe, hey, it's not so bad. It's no big deal. You do you, I do me. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desires contrary to you. Could Adam and Eve overcome the sin crouching at their door? Could, could Cain overcome the sin crouching at his door? Could Solomon overcome the sin crouching at his door? They all failed. Israel failed. Hear me. I fail. 
And I'm pretty sure you fail too. Because I know you. We all fail. Sin is crouching at the door. And we answer the door each time. Ding dong, money, sex, power. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. Welcome! It's us, man. Sin is crouching at the door. But, Matthew 12, 42. Jesus says, Behold, something, oh, sorry, something greater than Solomon is here. In light of everything we just read, for Jesus to say something greater than Solomon's, makes me cry. I can't handle that. What's that even mean, Jesus? Something greater. Jesus comes and he says he is greater than Solomon. Solomon's pretty great, right? We talked about, look at your sheet. He is the fulfillment of all this stuff. Something greater than Solomon is here in Jesus. Jesus was tempted in every single way. Hebrews uh, 4.15 tells us, and he did not sin. Sin was crouching at Jesus' door. It was trying to overcome him. Did it overcome Jesus? No, Jesus never sinned. He was tempted directly by the devil for things like power and pride and, and to even twist scripture. Did Jesus sin? No, he never went through those things. More, guys, hear this. More, Jesus speaks directly. He teaches us how to live. We went through the Sermon on the Mount last year. Jesus teaches how to live. He speaks directly against abuse and corruption of power and corruption of religious powers. He speaks on money and living generously and trusting in the Lord over yourself. He speaks on divorce and lust and sex. And by speaking on those things, Jesus says that the kingdom is a safe place for women. And it's a safe place for the abused. And it's a safe place for all those people who are corrupt and poor in spirit. By teaching us that he loves children and that we should take care of children, he says the kingdom is a safe place for the unborn. The kingdom is a safe place. That's what King Jesus comes to teach. He's better than Solomon because Solomon couldn't keep this junk out. Solomon killed babies. Solomon brought in all the sex and lust and power. And Jesus says, I am greater than that because my kingdom is a safe place for women who are abused. It's a safe place for the uninsured. It's a safe place for all the confusion we have. Roe versus Wade isn't the end, church. Praise God that it happened. Something was accomplished. And we can celebrate and we can clap, but it's not the end because there's still people who don't have insurance who are struggling. There's still people who are scared. There are people who look at the church and think that we don't care about their life circumstances because they're terrified and they're pregnant and they're alone. And Jesus says the kingdom is a safe place for them because I am greater than Solomon. And if we're not looking to Jesus together, if we're not living like this, if we're so caught up in our political victories, we completely miss the kingdom of God and we fall into the same money sex and power junk that Solomon fell into. Jesus is greater than Solomon. And he comes to speak truth and life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the tov and ra. I am the temple. I am the sacrifice. Jesus says, Solomon, uh, I am greater than Solomon. And then John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here. He goes on to say in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's laying down his life. Sin didn't overcome Jesus when he was tempted, but sin did kill Jesus. Your sin and my sin. All of the power and the sex and the money and all the things that we want, Jesus died on the cross. Or all the things that you seek to hide, you want anyone in the room to know about, you watching at home, you don't even want to come to church, you don't want people to know how bad you are. The things that we dress up and try to push down, Jesus died for those things. He laid them in the grave and then he rose again to communicate that he's defeated Satan, sin, and death so he can say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Behold, I am with you always. Jesus is everything. 
say Jesus is everything. Say it like you believe it. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. Jesus is greater than sin. Sin doesn't rule over Jesus. He rules over sin. Church, sin is crouching at your door. And I pray that the Spirit gives you a daunting concern with that. Because evil wants you to feel like you've really arrived. That you've made it. That you're good enough. And greater people than you have arrived greater places than you and they still fell. However long you've attended this church, your membership, how awesome you are, the Bible says you've completed all the books you've written, all the times you've preached, uh, how much better looking than, than you look than me in a polo, all these things that we prop up, man, all those things mean nothing because Jesus is everything. And sin is crouching at your door. Please don't walk out of these doors and pretend like sin doesn't exist or that it's relative or that these things don't matter because it's crouching at your door and that's exactly when it's going to break in and kill you. It's a slow fade. Money, sex, and power, it's all there can't emphasize it enough. But Jesus says, I'm greater than Solomon. Jesus is everything. The kingdom is a safe place for the poor in spirit, for the broken, because of Jesus. Not because you're awesome, not because I'm awesome, not because our church is awesome. The kingdom is a safe place because of Jesus. I don't know how you respond to all that. I would hope that some of the response is this, because that's my response. Man, I'm pumped for Roe versus Wade. I'm pumped for, for all the, the political things that might be happening. And I'm also really pumped when I read all these links and connections to Solomon and how God connects to Scripture. Thank God for Scripture. I get so excited, but it still leads me to this posture that we teach every week. We have to open our hands because you don't know what you don't know. And sin is crouching at your door. It's trying to devour you. It's trying to overthrow you. Money, sex, and power child sacrifices, all these things we'd never do. So we open our hands and we say, Jesus is everything. That's the only shot that I've got. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or I've got no hope. We're wasting our time. What a terrible hobby this must be if it's not true. It is true. Jesus is everything. And so maybe your response today is just to sit there like this and say, man, I need to take pause to pray, God, how do I respond to all the brokenness, all, all the, the ripples of, of abortion and, and women who are abused and trafficking and, and, and all the kids that die without water every four seconds? I don't know how to respond to the corruption in the world, but you say you're good, and so I open my hands. Maybe you open your hands and say, I don't know how to respond to the sin in my life and the corruption in my life and all the things that I hide, and you open your hands and say, God, Jesus is everything. That's all I've got. And we have people Sundays that come up and they say, man, I'm, I'm ready. And they give their life to the Lord and you watch them. You watch them have this posture because they finally realize, man, Jesus is all I got. There's no court case. There's nothing I can do. There's no drug. There's nothing that can get there. King Jesus is all I have. So maybe that's your response today. Maybe you've missed this whole understanding of the kingdom. And when I say the kingdom is a safe place, you don't understand. That doesn't mean anything to you. We say this a lot. It's so true. You can't follow Christ apart from the church. If you're not an active member of a gospel-teaching, God-fearing church, you can't be following Christ fully because you don't know what you know. And we need each other. So maybe your response is join the church. Come down. We'll talk about it. Praise God that he's put you here, watching from home, being here. You can join the church and we can say, we're going to seek Christ together. as one body. His kingdom come. His will be done. I don't know how you need to respond. But I'm going to read this verse in Acts 2 that we read a lot at the end, and then we're going to pray and move into our time response. I'll be down here to pray with you if you'd like to pray. Acts 2, 37 through 29. Now when they heard this, the gospel, they were cut to heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we do with this information? 
Something's happening in us, Peter, and, and we're cut to heart. What do we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to Himself. God is calling you to respond right now. How will you respond? This is our posture. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for how You speak to us and teach us. Thank You for Your great love for us, God. When we walk into the, the darkness and the corruption in our hearts, there's no words for it. God, I lean on Your Spirit. I pray that your spirit would move in how we respond, how we receive these words, how we open our hands as individuals, as a church, as your body. May we see your kingdom come. May we be your new humanity, your kingdom, your people. Thank you for your great love for us. I pray for those who, who are about to respond, God, that you would speak to them, that your gospel, that your truth would penetrate any, any arrogance, any, anything that's holding them back, any fear that you would cast out all evil. And that this would be a place full of stories of redemption, full of broken people being healed, full of poor in spirit, seeing your kingdom, your life. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. May we see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. As you take time to respond, if you need to pray, I'll be down here.